This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. I think we could talk about sleep probably several hours, but let's move a little bit, a little bit forward. So, how how do we measure sleep? Yeah. Um, so, sleep measurement has evolved um, over the last hundred years or so. Um, it really wasn't until about 60, 70 years ago that we started to really put electrodes on people's brains and start to measure EEG activity and eye movements and, and utilize that technique. Uh, for long-standing periods of time, we've relied upon just patient report, individual report. Um, you know, it's it's focused a lot on the subjective experience, anecdotes about dreams, and how that's mapped onto the subconscious. Um, you go back hundreds of years, and that's the predominant mechanism for kind of assessing sleep, if you will. The more objective tools kind of came online in, in the um, kind of 1950s or so, when when technology afforded the opportunity. And um, I know this is near and dear to Ollie's work as well. Uh, We relied heavily on accelerometry um, to capture sleep and wake movements. Uh, Clinical actographs served as the predominant tool for objectively measuring sleep. And these can generally run up to $1,000 or so. And they're basically just wrist-worn devices that have a triaxial accelerometer that measures movement in three different directions and uses uh, the um, physical activity from that uh, to determine whether someone is awake or asleep. And truthfully, there's a lot of inherent limitations to that approach, um, as we've seen. Uh, It can lead to a lot of estimations, generally overestimations of total sleep time and sleep efficiency. So no measurement is going to be without error, though. As we also rely upon a gold standard technique known as polysomnography. And polysomnography, poly meaning many, somno sleep, graphy measurements, basically is as it describes. We put a lot of different wires on you to measure a various physiological signals, whether it be brain activity, EKG, your heart activity, EOG to measure your eyes. We measure muscle tonus in the legs. We measure respiration using belts, all these different wires and sensors in a laboratory setting to comprehensively uh, classify sleep. Because accelerometry has the inherent limitation that it cannot uh, classify sleep. It can quantify sleep, but it cannot classify sleep beyond just sleep and wake. So its tool is more or less about kind of establishing a sleep-wake pattern, getting a sense into your sleep-wake cycle, and kind of the duration of your sleep per se. But it doesn't tell us anything about those stages of sleep that we were talking about earlier. And so polysomnography provides us that in-depth look, but it's cumbersome. You have to go to a a specialized location. It requires um, trained... um, clinical staff to interpret it, to provide feedback. And you you generally have to budget a night of your life too, and you're in an artificial environment. Um, So we're not necessarily capturing true habitual sleep, and we're definitely not measuring over a longitudinal period, 
which limits the utility of polysomnography, which is the gold standard measurement. So you think to yourself, okay, so the gold standard measurement has limitations. Well, we're screwed. Um, Thankfully, there's been kind of an advent of technology that's allowed us to take these gold standard tools and bring them closer to the habitual environment. So there's things like ambulatory PSG, at-home PSGs, where um, people can come to your home and measure you in your home environment. Still requires specialized training, things like that. It's a bit cumbersome, and you're not going to get the longitudinal data you want to see the variability or the consistency or inconsistency in your sleep-wake patterns. I'm really excited about where the commercial domain has come in to kind of fill this gap. And I first started to do this research uh, in kind of around 2014, 2015, with the rise of commercially available fitness activity trackers that were starting to purport the ability to capture sleep. And at that time, Ollie, the truth is that they were pretty much mirroring the accelerometry approach that was utilized by clinical actigraphs. But their estimations were much worse at that time in these early stage models. And that probably is uh, a byproduct of just the algorithms they were using at that time. Over the years, um, devices have evolved from a hardware perspective and a software perspective. The algorithms are getting better. We're using machine learning approaches to better make use of the data. But the biggest change was, I think, through the inclusion of heart rate detection. And I often struggle with this word, but photoplasmography, we'll call it PPG. Um, And that really expanded the potential and utility of these devices where no longer were they just dichotomizing sleep similar to a clinical actigraph and were widely um, overestimating uh, sleep duration and sleep efficiency. But now they were purporting the ability to classify sleep into light, deep, and REM. And truthfully, they sucked at first. They really did. Their their accuracy relative to um, the gold standard polysomnography was generally about 30 to 40% for classifying sleep in these early stage models. But the good news is the commercial uh, domain moves very quickly. And there's been a lot of progression over the last five years where these devices are really solid now. Their sleep duration estimation abilities are pretty much comparable with polysomnography. And I feel very comfortable with their ability to estimate sleep duration and their classification abilities, despite major growth, still have a little bit of error, but it's markedly improved. So for any of these real modern devices that have an accelerometer and a PPG heart rate detection, I feel pretty confident that they're probably accurately classifying sleep about 50 to 75% of the time. And there's going to be variations based on the product and how much attention the the company spent to kind of optimizing their algorithm and things like that. So to kind of close the door, right now we rely on um, kind of multimodal approaches to measure sleep. We still think the subjective experience is really important. So questionnaires and sleep diaries, those are really useful as they're convenient and they can be utilized in epidemiological large studies, but they're very prone to bias. Uh, especially retrospective recall. And so that's where the objective tools come into play. Polysomnography is is the gold standard. And if you have any concern for like sleep disordered breathing or a parasomnia or a true organic sleep disorder uh, outside of insomnia, you're probably going to want to have an in-laboratory polysomnographic evaluation. But there are other tools that allow us to comprehensively measure sleep now 
in the natural environment. And I think that domain is just going to rapidly expand. And um, I want to temper my enthusiasm, but I'm truly excited about the frontier of this and the kind of advent of not just wearable technology, but now nearable technology or sensors not directly on you, but around you can measure your environment and potentially accurately quantify and classify sleep without potentially disrupting your sleep because some people are really sensitive to wearing equipment. So uh, I think it's right now uh, um, amalgamation, a combination of subjective and objective tools. And the biggest barrier right now, Ollie, is um, how these commercial tools can integrate with the clinical domain. Um, It's a gray area right now. And I think that's the challenge for the field is finding the best use for this and also for the commercial domain to kind of play on our turf, if you will, at times to showcase algorithms and be a little more transparent that allows us to better integrate these clinically. Really, really good, good description of different methods. I have I have many questions. I don't even know where to start. Maybe maybe I start with the PPG sensor and the heart rate measurement. Why? Does the heart rate give gives provides so much better accuracy for the sleep detection? How does it work, and and what do you look from the from the signal? Great question, and uh, I will uh, first point out that not my area of expertise as far as the actual detection of the signal, and I would steer you to uh, Marco Altini or uh, Max Dasenbody for very comprehensive deep dive into that. I can give you kind of the the overview of it, but. Um, PPG, the kind of theory uh, behind how this is going to help is not so much on the actual identification of a start or an end of a sleep period, but it allows us better ability to predict when we're moving through different stages because our heart rate changes uh, during stages of sleep. As we go into the deeper stages of non-REM 2 and non-REM 3, our heart rate starts to slow down. And similarly, we also reach kind of our lowest core body temperature in in the middle of our sleep as well. So we can utilize these physiological signals as proxies into the changes of sleep without actually directly measuring the EEG or the brain activity going on. And then you see a spike often in more irregularity in your heartbeat during REM, rapid eye movement sleep, because it's known as paradoxical sleep. Why? Because it looks a lot like wake when I put you under all these sensors. Your brain activity speeds up, gets a bit more erratic. Your heart rate starts to um, increase and also become more variable, things like that. So it's the kind of intersection of known uh, changes in heart rate that allows us to then classify the um, kind of navigation of sleep architecture, the different stages across the night. The accelerometry part is still relied upon heavily to determine kind of the onset and offset of sleep, but it's the PPG that gave us some insight into better ability to predict the different stages of sleep. And then from there, it's been refinement in the algorithm where you get big data sets of polysomnography that also have wearable devices and people who have much more sophisticated statistical backgrounds than myself can use machine learning or AI techniques to kind of improve our prediction uh, abilities and that's where these devices have really improved over the last couple of years yeah i see and you mentioned the temperature how how is the temperature between core and and for example wrist could we get some information with the temperature sensor about the sleep stages if if the device is worn on the on the wrist 
Yeah, I would think so. You know, we're not we're not using that really yet. Um, and I think, as you pointed out, there's complexity there of like how um, much alignment or how accurate is the wrist temperature measurement relative to internal core body temperature. Um, but as these devices have expanded with that modality, and then also uh, the ability to detect kind of oxygen variations throughout the night with kind of SpO2 monitors, I feel like these are going to be incorporated more, but more or less, um, I guess this is a good time to kind of talk about this. Um, the body's always seeking homeostasis, right? That's that's kind of a fundamental view here. And one of the reasons why a hot cup of tea or a decaf tea or um, a warm shower prior to bed helps with sleep initiation and sleep quality is that it leads to a homeostatic rebound where the body then starts to try to cool itself. So you've warmed the body, now you're cooling it. And that's critical because as we reach our deeper stages in kind of the middle, what's known as the nadir of our sleep, that's our lowest core body temperature of a 24-hour period. And so you're basically starting the process. You're sending a signal to the body to start cooling itself, which in turn starts to kind of mobilize sleep biology. Um, so I think that's the kind of theory behind um, whether or not we could utilize temperature to uh, help enhance kind of algorithmic development. But I don't think as a standalone temperature would be sufficient, whereas heart rate itself has been shown to be sufficient to kind of reliably and accurately predict sleep stages. Um, so I think the kind of enhancement or the future here is the combination of all these signals in a similar fashion to what we do with polysomnography to give our best guess of what is the sleep stage. And um, I do think that the devices the wrist-worn detection um, will, if it's not at its current stage, I haven't looked at the literature, but if it isn't there yet, it will in the future um, be able to accurately uh, be a proxy to internal core body temperature. I think I have read somewhere that in, in general, you sleep better in the cooler room, but still it's better sleep if you have socks and I think gloves because it, it was complicated how how the body temperature is in different parts. Do, do you know anything about this? Could you, could you tell us a little bit? Because it makes a difference if we measure the temperature from the body or from the wrist, I guess. Yeah, well said. And, and I, I must say that's, that's not something I'm, I'm well versed on, but I can just speak anecdotally and whether it's with people I've worked with while training um, clients, things like that, or myself, um, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of variability in, in those recommendations too, right? Like I was definitely a staunch, like I sleep better with socks on. And now I've realized I sleep better with socks on in the winter, but I'm really prone to overheating. And so actually, if I wear socks at night right now, I'm more likely to have more awakenings and have less quality sleep for me. But my partner, she needs to sleep with like eight pairs of socks on just because she runs like a little bit colder than I do and things like that. So I think there's going to be a lot of variability there. And that also brings us into kind of the variability of measurement where different skin um, uh, will uh, textures and different kind of pigments will lead to different ability to detect the signals we want. Uh, and so I think that is a, a key point here is, are the signals, is the accuracy of the signal consistent wherever measured? And uh, truthfully, all my, my best guess is probably no, right? And so where is the best way to, where is the best location to measure temperature for the purpose of sleep is kind of the, the focal question there. 
Yeah, and why, why I'm interested because some of the accelerometer sensor chips have actually integrated temperature sensor. It's not probably ideal location as it's usually not directly against the skin with most of the of the designs, but I think that's something interesting. And then usually we measure the accelerometer is on the wrist. Is there a clear reason why is it so, or is it more convenience? Could it be elsewhere and do we get the same quality of, of sleep quantity from different parts of the body? Great question. Uh, I think largely it's a convenience angle, right? It's, it's not uh, as invasive, if you will, just having a wrist-worn device, um, at least for me. Um, generally speaking, if I had a strap around my chest or if I had something on my leg, I'd probably be more, I notice it more than just having kind of a wrist-worn watch because it mirrors something I wear every day anyways. Um, so the translation from my daytime wearing a watch to nighttime wearing a watch is, is not as drastic as putting some other unique or distinct object in my body. Yet there are a lot of uh, actigraphy-based devices that can be worn elsewhere, whether it's a chest-worn strap or often in pediatric research with kids, uh, they'll often use leg accelerometers instead. Um, and I do think there's merit in certain disordered populations, whether it be persons experiencing Parkinson's disease or things like that, where they may have resting tremors, that it may be more useful to measure from a different location. And I don't think we do a great job at this point kind of tailoring our measurement approach to those types of characteristics. Uh, but I think that's what we should be looking at in the future is, is gathering data from a different location for this person going to lead to better quality data and thus better quality recommendations and uh, insight. Um, so yeah, we can do actigraphy at various points at different points in the body, right? We're just basically measuring movement. And I think the wrist makes the most sense for now just because of a convenience standpoint and people being most comfortable with it and less likely to disrupt their sleep. Yeah, and, and how, how do you see most of the algorithms are done for the wrist? Do you think the same algorithms could work for different uh, parts of the body, for example, ankle? Or do you think the sensitivity needs to be changed because kind of size or mass of the part that is, is being moved? Yeah, fantastic question. I do think that you would have to have uh, different algorithmic settings depending on the location of the body. Um, you know, just because of, you know, the way um, I'm most familiar with the Respironics uh, ActoWatch. And I've done a lot of work looking at their optimal setting configuration for reducing bias um, for kind of assessing sleep duration and, and disorders of hypersomnolence, which we can talk about later. Um, but what we found was there was wide variation in kind of the subtle tinkerings of the settings. And that's strictly just measuring in one location, right? And truly, we're relying upon movement in general. So the signal kind of magnitude itself is going to be majorly different from like a physical activity count perspective, if you will, if measuring on leg versus wrist. I just see differences there. Um, so I personally think that location is going to matter. And you're going to probably have to develop a specific algorithm for that. And then things we just ignore is that individual characteristics matter. And some people move more than others. And that's within their sleep state, right? Whether they have a true disorder like uh, a parasomnia or somnambulism where people are sleepwalking, doesn't have to be that drastic to create wide differences in the estimation ability of these devices. So I've wished 
I suppose is the right word for many years now to have more of a personalized algorithmic kind of development within these devices, you know, kind of a training period to the individual that perhaps maps on to a night in a sleep laboratory if we had the ability to do that, but rather maps on to the subjective experience um, and the algorithm can be trained on to one's perception of sleep. You know, simple questions like, do you feel like you moved more than normal last night or was that fully rep- represented of your sleep? And then the training can then occur there. So that person gets a personalized estimation of sleep rather than some universal standardized algorithm that may give them for one individual a completely um, problematic bias. This podcast is sponsored by Fibion. Uh, my name is Dr. Paul Batman, and I'd like to just say a few words about Fibion. Um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable, very valid and incredibly sturdy. I, I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear and can easily see the active in and active periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good, valid information. Fibion. From researchers to researchers. Yeah, I, I think this is very interesting. Like I come from the lot from the sedentary behavior and physical activity research. And now there's a recommendation mostly to measure from the thigh because then we can detect the sitting and standing difference. So and, and the health effects of sedentary behavior. But basically you do 24 hour measurements or seven day measurements and and then the device will be on the thigh so we actually get a lot of raw acceleration data but that's all from the thigh how would you use that data the best way for to study sleep also we cannot change it to the wrist every night so how how would you how would you go with the thigh data i mean i think there's there's nothing wrong with with using data collected there i just think the process then needs to be from a validity standpoint, you know, showing that uh, the algorithm developed there, the raw signal you're collecting um, can be reliably transformed into sleep or awake characteristics that within reasonable error map onto those derived from polysomnography. So um, I would do studies that have the thigh device on um, and with polysomnography and then utilize statistical techniques um, such as machine learning to utilize the features collected from the thigh device and then able to predict um, with best accuracy the sleep stages you're in and develop whatever whatever function emerges from that from the features being utilized um, however they're weighted whatever reduces the bias would be the best algorithm with that data and I certainly think there's there's no harm to doing it again it's it's just another um, location of collection and it's just recognizing the the differential limitations and strengths of that location of collection and and do you know any studies that would have actually had just several accelerometers around the body and then using polysomnography to actually study it's not a difficult setup but have have anyone done it well yeah you know nothing really comes to mind off the top of my head i can dig deeper there's definitely some open source data sets that um, our polysomnography within pediatrics. 
and they're largely looking at sleep disorder breathing, but they may have an accelerometer uh, kind of leg worn or thigh worn as well. And that may be a way to get kind of a training data set or a starting point to kind of build an algorithm. Um, but I can look deeper to see if there's studies that have compared actigraphic estimations based on location, because I imagine there's some good studies out there that I'm just not aware of. And and how do you see one one more question about the locations? How do you see backward? We have one application where uh, in clinical case there was a need to be able to differentiate between uh, sitting, laying down, and then uh, standing, walking, and that's easy to do from the signal when you are wearing the accelerometer on the back. How would you see the sleep detection in in this case? Is it is it similar again with the body? You are kind of central. Probably you use your arms and legs more than you are actually turning your body. How how do you see it going? Yeah, that's that's what I think. What I really like about um, some of the stuff you're doing too is the ability to kind of predict the positional sides of things more and uh, those more nuanced movements rather than just like acceleration, trying to translate um, these signals into actual meaningful um, characterizations, if you will. Um, I do think that uh, when in terms of sleep, we're really limited on that front, regardless of how we approach it without having like a chest sensor. I think that would be our best way to kind of determine the positional layout of someone, whether they're on their side, on their back, or, um, you know, supine is really important. So on their back, uh, they're having sleep disorder breathing, whereas the wrist and the legs, I, I don't think give us as much information. Um, and truthfully, that's kind of an inherent limitation as well here is their ability to strictly from accelerometry tease apart um, sleep and motionless wake, right? That's the, the big limitation right now is I can lay there perfectly still and be cognitively awake but these accelerometers may pick that up as sleeping. So that's just kind of the inherent limitation of relying upon accelerometry alone. Um, but I think there's ways that we're going to supersede that in the future. As far as kind of capturing the best positional state, I think trying to do that from the chest makes the most sense. Um, but I could see how like a head worn accelerometer may do better at that um, than say a chest worn. But I think Right now, that is a better modality of collection or location of collection than, say, a wrist or a leg. Mm. And and how do you see the sleep position? If you can measure it, does it have a lot of clinical relevance? Is it is it meaningful to measure the sleep positions? Yeah, definitely, uh, absolutely. I think for the most salient or glaring reason is for sleep disorder breathing. Um, you know, obstructive sleep apnea is the most common form of sleep disordered breathing, and it's highly prevalent across uh, society and, and increasing in prevalence too, largely to sedentary behaviors, the rise of obesity, um, unhealthy eating habits, things like that. And we're more prone to having sleep disordered breathing when we're on our back. And basically, it's it's actually kind of a simple mechanism, if I can describe it kind of elementary. So a, a main cause for obstructive sleep apnea is a crowded airway. And um, we have a uh, flap, a physiological flap called the uvula uh, that kind of uh, parses through or regulates kind of airflow. And when you're on your back, uh, that uvula has a harder time staying open, largely because of gravity. Gravity is a pain, right? And so gravity is pushing that down. And when we lay on our slide side, we're less likely to, or our airway is more likely to have 
more open space. And so when someone goes into lab for an assessment, they'll actually break up sleep disordered breathing events, things like uh, respiratory related arousals or apneas or hypopneas, which are just shorter or um, less intense stoppages of breathing uh, during sleep into whether it occurs on one's back or on their side. Because someone may have really, really bad sleep disorder breathing when they're on their back, but it may not be that bad on the side. And so the question becomes, do they need an invasive technique like a continuous uh, positive airway pressure machine, a CPAP machine? Or what if we do positional therapy and we put a little tennis ball on their back in kind of one of those like um, cyclist uh, jerseys they wear? And so that whenever they lay on their back, they're kind of prompted to roll on their side. And perhaps that in alone is sufficient enough to uh, manage or treat their sleep disorder breathing that's causing poor sleep quality. I've always had a hypothesis that there's more to this though, Ollie, that uh, when it comes to like physical injury or the propensity for um, kind of spinal abnormalities, uh, kind of rolled hunched backs, things like that, um, we spend a third of our life sleeping, right? So it makes sense to me that the physical formation of our sleep uh, matters for kind of long-term physical structure and uh, stability. But we really haven't done that research. We haven't parsed through that and understood that like curling up in the fetal position may not be an optimal strategy for kind of spine or back health. And that's something that I've always thought we should explore further. Um, And I think that's where kind of positional sleeping positions uh, should be looked at in the future and um, would be an interesting area of inquiry. Yeah, I, I think that's that's interesting. And also from the thigh worn, you can can detect basically sideways and on the back back sleeping. It gets a little bit more complicated if you kind of flex from the hip. So then it's get a little bit more messy. But I think generally you could you could detect those also and and definitely if the if the sensor is on the body you can you can do that. Uh, you mentioned nearables which is probably maybe new word for for some people could you could you first tell what what they are and what what is the the status at the moment how how valid they are for detection of sleep and different stages of sleep yeah uh certainly so we're gonna just globally talk about two categories here is as wearables we'll, we'll crudely classify as anything that's worn Anything that's, you know, wrist worn or thigh worn or uh, put on your head like an EEG headband, anything like that gets lumped in the category wearables, uh, where it's making contact with you to pick up a signal that it's then translating into sleep characteristics. Um, nearables are relatively new compared to wearables. They're, they're advents probably within the last five years or so. And these are a lot of bedside monitors. Or even you could put uh, pads under mattresses, things like that, that are trying to detect the same signals as wearables uh, and translate them into sleep and wake characteristics, um, but are doing it hopefully without contact. And that's an exciting thing for me is some people are really sensitive to touch during sleep or kind of slight disturbances. You can imagine someone who has kind of a heightened arousal state because of post-traumatic stress disorder or something like that may not want to have contact with things during sleep that may disrupt sleep. And that's not the purpose of these devices, right? It's to provide a lens into our sleep. So nearables is just a catch-all term for anything that's not touching you, 
but is purporting the ability to quantify or classify sleep. And they first had major utility. Um, I think their most salient immediate uh, utility came in kind of as a screener for sleep disordered breathing. You know, snore microphones is a great example that were available on cell phones early on. And so potentially it could capture uh, snoring that could shed insight into whether somebody has severity of sleep disordered breathing that warrants clinical attention. And I still think that's their most polished utility at this point. But the rapid growth of the commercial domain has, again, enhanced this area greatly too over the last couple of years. And uh, I don't think they fully reached the point of um, wearables yet from their sleep detection abilities, but they're definitely improving and uh, they're purporting similar outputs. And uh, I think these are kind of the future in some ways of what a sleeping environment looks like where you have a nearable device that's monitoring your sleep in real time and can actually adjust the settings in your home, like a smart home, to either make it cooler, warmer, to start turning on lights, to start turning off lights, to mimic the natural world. Um, I think that's the future where a nearable is going to be kind of plugged into your home environment to help not only enhance your sleep quality, uh, but also bring you out of sleep and kind of transition to wakefulness a little bit better too. Uh, but right now, the, I think the technology is not there. They often use radar techniques to peripherally probe the environment. Um, and I just think it's a little bit less accurate in, in their detection abilities than, say, a wearable at this point. And and what what do you see as the most potentially nearable? Is it is it the microphone or is it the bed sensor, which is actually detecting actual movements? What, what do you think will, will perform the best in, in some years? Uh, well, right now, I think it's the bed sensors from an accelerometry perspective, or that's what uh, my lit review for a book chapter I just wrote kind of led me to believe, right? Um, I think the accelerometry, the ability to detect movement is is um, pretty consistent across wearables and nearables at this point. Uh, and in fact, a, a bed sensor may be better in some ways of detecting meaningful movement, that which is of a magnitude that would suggest uh, transitions between sleep and wake and things like that. Uh, the snore mics do have good um, evidence, substantiation that they can capture the signal we want, right? And that can be translated into a meaningful characterization of, of breathing metrics. The question becomes which application, which device, so on and so forth because they're not all consistent across applications or devices. And that's the major challenge for the field right now is we're incapable of evaluating. I will, hesit I will always hesitate to use the word validating because I don't even know what validating really means when something is fully validated. But we cannot evaluate everything that comes on the market. And so there are some things that have been uh, gone under more empirical rigor than others. And I think that... Um, those devices that have gone through that process generally uh, suggest that the snore mics and the accelerometry detection are, are pretty quality. Um, I think the future becomes, can we use techniques? Um, you know, there's, I, if I'm, I can't remember the exact year, but I think in 2017, 2018, it was first coming online as far as radar to detect EEG activity in the brain. And can we, uh, collect that critically important signal through a nearable um, would be fantastic, right? Right now, we still have these EEG headbands. I think that'll quickly be um, 
superseded by Bluetooth applied electrodes that can connect to a wearable. But it'd be great if we didn't have to wear anything. And if a nearable could use some sort of radar technology to kind of capture what is going on uh, at, a, at a physiological level, especially in the brain. And I do think that's the future. Uh, it's just whether technology is going to let us get there. It's not really, I guess, an if. It's more of a when, I think, when technology lets us get there. So EEG headband, probably not nice to wear in the in the night. Do you, do you see it? How, how does it integrate? I'm thinking like people have piercings in their in their ears, maybe in their nose, could it be a piercing that is working as an EEG electrode? Yeah, that would be interesting, right? Like an embedded kind of electrode, uh, an aesthetic, right? We're in the fashion realm now of EEG electrodes. Um, Yeah, I I certainly see something similar to that. I mean, on the crude level, it's truthfully, Ollie, it's a surprise to me it hasn't happened yet, that a big commercial company has not created just a little patch, like a little Bluetooth patch that you could apply to a frontal location just to get some EEG signal. Because we've seen in the literature that you can reliably stage sleep off of just a single channel. So why not try and bring that critically important piece of information as a feature into your algorithm build? And for me, where I see this as the major benefit is the ability to detect not just or cla- not just classify the stages better, but the real ability to detect the difference between motionless wake and sleep and to improve our ability to determine sleep onset and offset. So how long it's going to take someone to fall asleep is going to be affected by that measurement error right now and also wake during the night. And because those characteristics are insomnia related symptoms and insomnia is the most common disorder among the general population, it makes a lot of sense that we should focus efforts to better capture those characteristics of sleep from an everyday use perspective, but certainly from a clinical perspective. And and how is it with the bed sensor? Because I think in clinical use you can you can measure cardiac output from a from a table. So basically your heart beats, there's a mass of blood rushing toward your head, and according to Newton's third law, your body is moving with the same same uh, amount backwards. So can you do you think that could be detected also with the bed sensor with some some sensitivity. Yeah, I, I think I, I think the technology is getting there for sure. And, um, you know, I think it's going to be it probably will require hardware changes more than software changes to kind of amplify the signal, because I imagine it's probably uh, a very low frequency or just a, a hard to detect signal from a bed sensor perspective. Um, so I think that's where the biggest change is going to be is this balance between uh, we don't want this giant, big, cumbersome thing. But we need a strong ability. We need something that can amplify and detect the signal or, or make it a little stronger for us to utilize. Right. And so I think that's the limitation there, but it, it probably will be resolved soon enough. I'm I'm really interested in seeing um, there's a, a researcher, Dr. Andy Galpin, who's uh, really interested in, in um, sports and performance, recovery, things like that. And he's found himself in the sleep space as well now. And he's created a product that I'm not entirely too familiar with. I recently heard about it called Absolute Rest. And it basically utilizes a nearable device to capture respiration, uh, CO2 levels out of the mouth as well. And they're using all of these types of information to better characterize sleep. Uh, so I think a lot of people much smarter than myself are, are doing, sounds like you as well, are doing um, remarkable things to kind of push the 
um, sensitivity of sleep measurement devices forward and also expand the resources that are available to improve our collection abilities and better adapt them on a personalized level. Yeah, this, this is very, very interesting. But maybe we move on after one, one question. What, what, what's your prediction of, of future of sleep wearables, nearables, hearables? I don't know what, what all there will be. What do you think it will be in, in five, ten years? Yeah, I, I think the frontier is really, really exciting. Um, truthfully, I, I don't think that we're looking at 20 years away. I don't even think we're looking at 10 years away. I think within the next five years, we're going to have these environments. We can call them bedrooms if you want, but our sleeping environments that without effort or intention on our end, passively collect all the information without having anything connected to us that can comprehensively um, describe sleep and quantify sleep at a level that is comparable to polysomnography. And reaching that point would be a major success. If we can just longitudinally track sleep health at that level with truly all passive uh, forms of collection, that'd be amazing. You know, we've we've explored sleep pajamas. Uh, we've explored a lot of those types of things. And I just think those are more disruptors than enhancers at this point. So the future is really about a single device that maybe makes use of uh, other kind of um, uh, modalities that exist around it um, to capture the signals that we capture in laboratory uh, while doing it from the comfort of your home. And then again, to modify the environment as that happens. So if Ollie's going to sleep and the device notices that Ollie is a little bit more aroused than perhaps he normally is at this stage, what can be modified in the bedroom environment, whether it be that odd, uh, you know, all these TVs on or all these listening to a podcast and the volume of that podcast starts to gradually de- go down as the device tries to help Ollie uh, find a sleep like state, right? Or drift into sleep. And similarly, you know, Ollie informs the device that he would like to wake up no later than say seven o'clock in the morning. And the device can then even in the colder winter climates, potentially modify the room so that the lights in the room start to gradually increase to mirror that which we would have in the natural world that then informs our circadian rhythm, starts to downregulate the melatonin that we need to not be kind of sleepy upon awakening, upregulate cortisol and have more of a natural progression out of our sleep rather than this, uh, in my eyes, archaic use of alarm clocks to disrupt our sleep and yank us out of sleep. Uh, so I think it's this combination of improved measurement passively that leads to comprehensive measurement similar to that of polysomnography. I won't stand here and say that we're going to be as precise as in-lab measurement uh, within the next five years, but allows us to take that comprehensive measurement to the natural environment. And that in turn can integrate with this movement towards kind of smarter homes, if you will. And that can lead to modifications in the environment, whether it's lowering the temperature in the room to help Ollie reach a deeper stage of sleep or gradually bringing on uh, light in the morning to help Ollie come out of sleep. That will be the real change and evolution of these devices and our ability to measure and modify sleep in the natural environment. Perfect. So a lot of technology to make me sleep better. How, how you thought? Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, we, we have discussed now about an hour and we haven't covered at all the sleep problems and, and your 
research expertise of hypersomnians and, and future research plans. So maybe we wrap up this here and we have a short break and then we continue. So thank you, Jesse, for, for this. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Ollie. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.